This is Box to Box Stoppage Time with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're with Rob Gilbert, Michael Edgley and Joey Lynch from ESPN for our podcast where we go through our highlights of the past week, our teams and moments of the week and plenty more. And as we often say, it's not necessarily the highlights of the week, it's just our highlights of the week. Um, and uh, Edge and Joey, um, yeah, well, I think we've come up with some some uh, good uh, nominations for this week. And uh, um, Edge, I'm going to just get you to sit on the back burner there, mate, because I know you're always champing at the bit, aren't you? I am, but I'll wait till Joey's uh, talked about his game of the week and then I'll slot straight in after that. And what is it, Joe? What are you going to kick us off with, mate? My game of the week, it was a game that I attended on Sunday in the A-League Women, second round of the A-League Women. It was Western United's first home game of the season, taking on Melbourne uh, victory. Uh, I think first, it was a bitterly cold, bitterly windy and grey day, but it was great to see a rather large attendance make it out there the entire um, club room side of the stadium was packed out. There were plenty of people around the fences as well. So once again, the uh, the much ballyhooed uh, Matilda's effect still in action and seeing a big crowd come out. And the game itself, I don't for for a lot of people, it probably wouldn't have gone down as you know a five star classic um, type event. But for me, I was very interesting and interested and intrigued about how the two sides went about things as well as the manner of the goals were scored and what it means for the future. Western United, obviously, coming uh, back to secure a 2-1 win. Um, the Taranto Twins combining to score on a corner and then, uh, I think, in the 91st minute, Kiwa Haida in just her second ever game in the A-League Women's popping up uh, with the winner for Western United. So first, Western United doing what Western United does in the A-League women at this point, coming from behind, coming back in the second half and taking a win. I was very intrigued to watch throughout the game how they set up, particularly with Chloe Legazzo making her first start, or for the club ever, actually. Her last start came for Sydney FC back in 2019. That's how long between A-League women's drinks it's been for her. But she was deployed as a false nine. Uh, Hannah Keane moved out to the wing, Chloe Legazzo playing as a false nine and either during slow periods of build-up, dropping deep, uh, switching around with Adriana Taranto and facilitating play, or in moments of transition, uh, spamming runs in behind frequently um, between uh, Kayla Morrison, off the shoulder of Kayla Morrison, trying to get something on her. And it's going to be very... I'm very intrigued to see now that we have established that that is the plan for United, because how that works throughout the season, because obviously Hannah Keane, golden boot winner, last season, but now they've shifted her out to the wing um, and why we're now seeing Chloe Legazzo, who's obviously made her reputation, made her money as a box-to-box, never-stop-running midfielder, why we're now seeing her deployed in this sort of false nine role. Is that just to get her physically back up to speed of playing 90 minutes week in and week out? And eventually she'll go into the midfield once she can go box-to-box for 90 minutes week in and week out. Is it a new strategy? Intrigued to see how that works out for Melbourne Victory. Uh, reinforced this game in my mind that they are desperately uh, in need, particularly I think of Emily Gelnick coming into that side to just give them a destroyer as the number nine position, this really lethal finisher that can, you know, get on the end of balls into the box, finish her chances, can physically intimidate opposition defences. I think she'll 
when she can come back and start. She'll get minutes in a friendly next week and she'll probably come off the bench after the international break for her. Um, it reinforced in my mind that she's going to be massive for this side. And also, that's now three set-piece goals conceded in two weeks for Melbourne Victory's A-League women's side. Jeff Hopkins, central defender by trade, will hate that. Ostensibly, that should be something that you can fix with repetition on the training track, but we'll see whether or not they can actually do that in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, interesting, Joey. Really enjoy that analysis. My game of the week was Leicester City 3 Swansea won in the championship. And you might think that's a bit of an odd selection, but just let me tell you why. Enzo, I mean, I think clubs that get relegated from the Premier League into the championship, it's a real test for the organisation as to whether they're able to reboot and and flip themselves back up into the Premier League. Leicester was a shock relegation last year considering the talent they had. But in their 3-1 win over Swansea, um, Mariska's side has made it 11 wins from their opening 12 games to break the record for the best championship start since 2004. That's also equaling the best start to the second-tier campaign too. Just some of these uh, records go way back. They're always interesting. Um, they've equaled uh, Bury's 1980, uh, sorry, 1894-1895, uh, Preston North End in 1903-1904, Bristol City, 1905-906, Tottenham in 1919-20, Newcastle 92-93, and most recently Fulham 2000-2001. So that's a remarkable achievement by Leicester. They've also, after seven consecutive league victories, Leicester now sits 11 points clear of third place Leeds United, five points clear of second place Ipswich Town, or albeit Ipswich have a game in hand. So Leicester's won six consecutive away games. That sets another record. The Foxes are the first second-tier side to win their opening six away games ever in the in the second tier. It's all something um, the club's never done before, eclipsing the five in a row one under Nigel Pearson, whose championship team won promotion. So the reason I say this is the game of the week, because by any standards, Leicester City, you know, that shock relegation, the change of manager, change of backroom staff, half the squad left. It's even a, even more remarkable bounce back. So you'd have to say, based on that start, uh, the ominous signs that we're seeing, Leicester's bound for the Premier League, Rob. We had a good chat with Rob Tanner a couple of weeks back, didn't we? And uh, and and Rob was really up and about. Uh, um, you know, we tracked the uh, the, the the relegation uh, story and and some of the decisions that were made, and uh, um, and we uh, we just got a sense from Rob that as disappointing as it was for them to go down, that uh, uh, to quote. Paul Keating, it might have been the relegation that they had to have, um, and only to, to realise you know how much that they'd lost, and and under you know their tie owners um, that they you know they they threw um, everything at um, at the club to to um, to give them the the best chance of re rebounding. So uh, it's a great story, but as we found out from Burnley, you can have a dominant championship season and and still struggle struggle when you come back. So it'll be interesting to to see how the rest of the season plays out, and hopefully we you know we we get Rob on again soon. And we'll talk about uh, um, what may well be their, uh, you know, their, their their trampoline promotion. Now, I picked uh, an A League men's game as my game of the week. It was the Big Blue. Now, not so much because it was a classic, um, but more because it signalled what might be 
the new dawn for Melbourne victory under Tony Bobovich after last year's disastrous campaign. Now, I know you don't have to have a long memory to know that victory beat Sydney in the same tie last year. So in the end, it might mean nothing. But this time they look like they just had that touch of class that's been missing in, in recent times. And, uh, you know, I, I love the story of Daniel Larzani's uh, resurgence. And, uh, you know, and he uh, he almost got on the end of, uh, of one uh, to, to open the scoring, didn't manage to do it. Uh, they had all the honouring, all the running early. They missed a, a bunch of guilt edge chances, but uh, in the end, you know, it was the evergreen Bruno Fornaroli, and it wasn't Bruno Fornaroli uh, uh, and Silky Skills. It uh, it was just the predator that he is uh, off a defensive stuff up between uh, Andrew Redmayne and, and Luke Bratton, um, and then the second that, that sealed the points late, Zinedine Mashash. It was a it was a really classy, strong uh, uh, finish where he, he just uh, beat it, was, four. it reminded me of Blocker H playing for Belmain the way he, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he just he just crashed through and uh, uh, so. Through. He said, "Get out of the way." <laughs> yeah, and 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 it was a lovely finish as well. Could and, have been uh, a fair just quietly could have been yeah oh, well you know i'm glad that it wasn't because uh you know zinedine uh um uh the original zinedine um uh, was uh not that i'm saying he was channeling him but uh uh but at least he he earned his name and um and uh, and that is a pretty big name to, to live up to so so joey i mean did, did you see enough hope in that game to 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 think that we're going to see um a a, a strong year ahead or, or is it just too soon to tell I think I, what particularly made me take, well, made me think that we're, uh, Melbourne Victory will have a strong season, um, it was actually the back line. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me is when you're watching this game, Sydney were forced into quite a lot of U-shaped possession. They weren't able to really open up Melbourne Victory's back line. Uh, the new Brazilian striker, Fabio, I looked at a pass map, the pass map that the A-League's website's put up as stats after the game. He actually didn't have a line with any other player on his stats map. That's how much they were able, Victory was able to isolate him. Because So when you look at that Victory back line, Adama Traore, Jason Guerrier as the wing-backs, but particularly the centre-back pairing, Roderick Miranda... Damien De Silva, age may very well weary them at some point during the season. Injuries might pop up. But in terms of just talent and the ability to play as a defender, for me, that might be the best centre-back combination in the league. And then you put Paul Izzo behind them. I think whatever victory does going forward, victory don't need to improve their attack by a lot I think they just need, they don't need to be a fantastic attack. They just need to be good enough because that defence Victory's defence was one of the best in the league last season. Just people didn't realise it because everything else was god-awful. But that defence could be even better this season. And I think that's the reason I'd be very hopeful if I was a Victory fan because that Sydney game has reinforced that in my mind. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, that's positive news for victory because uh, you know whether you love or hate victory, um, we need big crowds. We need the theatre of this competition. And if there's one thing that victory does do when they're winning, is they draw big crowds and it draws attention from other eyeballs outside of the the football sort of uh, uh, bubble that um, that we exist in. So, Joey, uh, your team of the week. Um, you're sticking with the A League women's. Uh, I'll hand it over to you, mate. Uh, it's Melbourne City's women's side for me. I on this show a few weeks ago when we were previewing the season, I tipped them as my tip for the premiership. I think this performance against Canberra reinforced that in my mind. Canberra weren't good, but one question has, has to question whether or not that was Canberra, be, Canberra not being good or City simply not allowing them to be good. I think City were 
it's still early doors and the fact that they're going to get better this season, I think bodes really well because they were very impressive against Canberra. Cam, um, at times it almost resembled a bit of a training drill for them, the way that they were knocking the ball around, um, looking comfortable. Um, it should have been a larger margin. That's maybe the one concern you would have if you are Dario Vitasic, the fact that you couldn't convert some of the multitude of chances that you had and you let Canberra back into it through a communication error at the back line. That would be the concern. But I think for me, out of all the teams that we sort of picked as who's going to be at the top of the table at the end of the season, Sydney have had um, question marks, victory question marks, Western United question marks. I think City have been the most impressive team thus far. Yeah, no, that uh, well from you, Joey. That um, that is high praise indeed. Um, no one watches the uh, the A League women's closer than you do. So, um, well done, them. Edge, um, what about you? You've just picked a humble little backwater club uh, this week. Yeah, my team of the week is Manchester United, and it has nothing to do with on-field stuff. Um, every Manchester United fan, I think, has been waiting for signs of the end of the Glazer reign, and Sir Jim Ratcliffe is poised to purchase a 25% stake in the club. Um, and I just thought this was worth just a little bit of a dive into to educate or, or give a little bit of more detail to this story for our listeners. People say, who's Sir Jim Ratcliffe? Well, he's a British billionaire who made his fortune through petrochemicals giant Enos. Um, he's in line to buy 25% of the stake. Uh, you might say... Why is he only buying 25% of the stake? But it's clearly a beachhead to buy more. It allows him to get in and understand what's going on behind the scenes and leverage a takeout over time. He's 71. He's regarded as one of the wealthiest individuals in the world. And according to Sunday Times Rich List, he's the second richest person in the United Kingdom. His wealth's estimated at almost £30 billion. That's a £6 billion increase in the last 12 months. Um, and minority investment, it's just a way for people to get their foot in the door at a football club um, and allow them to understand what's going on and, and leverage a, a purchase over a longer period of time. Um, Manchester United fans, especially the ones that wear the green and gold scarves, Jerry, they will be really looking forward to the day that the Glazers uh, leave the building and don't return, won't they? Yeah, I mean the Glazers. The Glazers for me, I've got no love for Man United whatsoever. You know, pox on every big club's house. But the Glazers for me exemplified a lot that's wrong with modern football ownership, um, especially like the way that they purchased the club, loading the club up with debt. Um, you know, treating it as an ATM, coming in not alienating fans for me that exemplified a lot that's wrong with modern football ownership um it didn't feel like they were there for the community which is what man united is it's the manchester united community and the manchester united fans that's when you dig into the what man united is they're the busby babes the class of 92 it's been about man united the community the academy these sort of things and i didn't feel that from the glazers so yeah i'm i won't you know as i said pox on all their houses a pox on sir jim ratcliffe's house as well he's a billionaire i don't like any billionaires but i won't be sad to see the glazers leave either that's it but it's interesting let's just have a look at a couple of the minority shareholders in premier league clubs fenway sports group obviously the owners of uh, the boston red sox uh, they've got a minority stake in liverpool um the United States uh, private equity firm Dynasty 
equity. Um, they fronted up with about 150 million uh, US dollars uh, for another minority stake in Liverpool. What about uh, the Hollywood actor Rob Michael B. Jordan? Do you know the mm. Hollywood actor Michael B. Jordan? I'm not familiar with his work. Well, I know he's, uh... he is Creed in the uh, spin-off Rocky movies, oh, Creed yes. one, two, and three. He's the boy yes. who is the plays the son of Apollo Creed. Well, mm. he owns 11 percent of Bournemouth, believe it or mm. not, which is an interesting sort of little little. Yeah, a little option for Michael B. Jordan to take on. Unfortunately, he's not involved in the group that took over Auckland. Bill Foley, the Bournemouth majority owner who purchased the Auckland licence. Michael B. Jordan's not involved in that bit either. He's not coming to the A-League. And obviously, the one that we should take a lot of interest in is Silver Lake, the private equity firm of the US, which has made a big investment in the A-Leagues, is also a minority stakeholder of 18% in the City Football Club, who obviously own Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Um other clubs have minority shareholders of note, Crystal Palace. Uh, they've got a couple of uh, local um, English uh, celebrities. Uh, and there's lots more, but oh, I mean, it's just interesting. I, I, was, I, was, I was hoping you weren't about to start listing uh, all of the, the lots more. No, no, I won't. It's a bunch of Americans. And like you talked about there, like the Fenway Group has 150 million investment in Liverpool. That's because it's cheaper to invest in a Premier League side than it is to invest in an MLS side. The last MLS expansion licence was half a billion dollars. It's cheaper to invest in bloody Liverpool than it is the MLS at this point. Well, that's ridiculous. It's got to be a good investment, you'd say, Rob, wouldn't you? What's your well, uh, we team of the week, Rob? Well, my team of the week, um, I'm, I'm sticking in the same part of the world as you are, and uh, um, and I think someone had to pick this team as the team of the week. Uh, we spoke about them expansively in the main show for obvious reasons, and that is, of course, Spurs. Uh, the evolution just continues. Uh, I know I copped a lot of... Uh, um, Brick bats from my, my colleagues here on this podcast. Um, Derek's not even back, and he was slamming me when I nominated Spurs as my team of the week uh, before the Fulham game. But uh, in the end... Um, I think he's entitled to uh, have a crack at you for nominating Spurs before they played, Rob. Well, I, I, I didn't need to be Nostradamus um, uh, as I gazed into my crystal ball predicting a, that they would. Did you have 100 quid on them, though? No, I didn't. Uh, it's always the way, isn't it? I'll, I'll, I'll back everything that that, um, that ends up losing, but the predictions that I make that end up winning, I usually don't have anything on. <laughs> but uh, no, but it was great. I, I got up and listened, and, um, and I, I just loved the fact. I felt that the world was right when I heard Martin Tyler's uh, uh, voice uh, as I um, as I began to, to listen to the game. I must admit I that was fantastic to hear, his, yeah. especially after his interview with us recently where yeah, he his did. voice and was really, you know, he was under the weather, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was, and, and for good reason, though, on that occasion because he was recovering from from a, uh, a, a, a medical treatment and, uh, um, and, and I don't mind saying it now that, um, you know, we've got to know Martin uh, reasonably well over the years of the podcast and um, and we, we asked him if there was a chance off air uh, whether he, he might be coming back soon. And he goes, as long as you promise to keep it just within us, um, just watch this space. And we did keep it within us. And uh, um, and he didn't tell us when it happened, but we tuned in. And I, I did message him after the game and uh, um, and said, mate, we were just so pleased. And, and he responded and, and said, thank you, my friend. Uh, very grateful for your support. Uh, so so it's just nice to be connected in that way. But but that wasn't the the uh, you know the uh, the reason why I picked Spurs. Obviously, the team of the week. But uh, I just. I've asked this question before. Obviously, I'm not the only one that's asked it, but uh, you know, Harry Kane is doing uh, wonderful things in the, in the Bundesliga, scoring goals for fun. Uh, but uh, 
surely there's got to be part of him that sits there and thinks, oh, my God, what's what have I done? You know, uh, will he be death-riding Spurs as he watches Sonny, uh, um, you know, come back to his best and James Madison doing amazing things and Ange Postacoglu winning, well, you know, you've Tottenham. You've got to ask the, the rhetorical obvious question is that are Tottenham better off without him? Sometimes yeah. a mm. player that is, you know, a number nine player in particular that is mm. so mm. good mm. Yeah. Sometimes that's masking, you know, mm. other opportunities that are, that are not there. But mm-hmm. um, look, it's a, it's a re- we talked about it a lot, haven't we, Rob? It's a remarkable mm. fairy tale story, and yeah. um, and Ange Postecoglou is doing Australian football proud. It's really fabulous. Yeah, mm. it really, really yeah. is. Uh, well, and in look- fact, my favourite Premier League player. I'm an Arsenal fan. But my favourite Premier League player is is the Korean Son because yeah. he's the best Asian player, and mm-hmm. he is. Uh, really relishing the leadership role. You can sense mm, that. Mm, um, you know, we know Ange is very carefully chooses his leaders within the group and the reaction to Son's goal from his teammates, mm-hmm. for me, said it all. As a, as a person that, you know, looks at that stuff closely, having, having played the game, you, you know when teammates are super happy for another mm, teammate mm, because mm. it reflects probably his, his aptitude and his... Um, you know, just the way he's going about things at the club and the reaction of his teammates to him scoring that goal was was gold. That's a club that's on the move, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're talking about it all day long for obvious reasons. Yeah, and, and, and remember, when we started the podcast back in 2015-16, it was like every week um, uh, Leicester City would, would just keep on winning and, uh, and, and it'd be became apparent that, um, you know, that they were in a genuine title race. And then, um, and remember Ben Soro Perez, the former media yes. manager of Brighton, uh, uh, was on the show back then. And he just refused to believe it. I mean, even after it was mathematically done, it was almost like he still refused to believe that it had happened. And uh, and so, look, if it's good enough for, for Leicester to do it at 5,000 to 1, then it's not out of the question because, you know, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Pep Guardiola um, has uh, has got another trick up his sleeve and that, uh, you know, with early Harland and all of the, the the amazing players that City have got um, to to call on that that there will be renaissance. Maybe Arsenal, uh, uh, your mob will will, uh, will will go one better than they did last year. Uh, Jurgen Klopp's doing some wonderful things. You look at Darwin Nunes and uh, and how his career was uh, you know is, is going through a, a, a another level, um, particularly off the back of his performances for Uruguay, which we'll talk about on another occasion. So th- there's plenty of competition. Aston Villa, Unai Emery is doing incredible things. I just think that because because there's so much competition, it allows for those unexpected losses uh, that we are seeing to to keep a team like Spurs um, in contention if they can just keep on uh, doing what they've been doing. Okay, um, let's move on. Hot topic, Joey? Hot topic for me was uh, we discussed it on the show a few days ago. Quartermentha being brought in to sell the Jets. The Newcastle Jets. Um, I think this is important, as I mentioned on the show with Garvey. Um, Perth Glory were sold within three months between them going into receivership, uh, Quartermantha being put in charge of that process, and then finally the sale going through and being announced. So I'm not expecting it to take three months again, given that the Jets have basically been on the market for almost three years at this point, um, and they haven't been able to find a buyer. But anything that can move that process forward. Um, if we are going to operate in this model of the A-Leagues where the APL will not allow a club to fail and are insistent on keeping a licence in Newcastle and there's no promotion and relegation for them to drop down and find themselves, if we are going to operate in this environment and this ecosystem, the fact they need new ownership 
desperately just so, to give that club a sense of direction. So I think it's massively important that they bring that in and they get that process moving. And, well, effectively, Cordamenta, one would hope, would have more luck because previously it's been the the clubs, as far as the previous interview I had with Danny Townsend was explained to me as it was the clubs that were trying that were helping prop the Jets up, that were trying to sell that license. Maybe they were asking too much because they were trying to recoup some of their investment versus now Cordamenta, one would think their primary directive would just be to, here's the absolute minimum. If you can sell it for more, that's great, but just sell it as soon as you can. So hopefully that's a good sign for the Jets that they'll bring new ownership in and, well, it's an asset. So hopefully they should get that sold sooner rather than later. What do you think, Edge? I absolutely agree with Joey. It's it's Everyone talks about Newcastle. I mean, for people of my generation and Joey's heritage in the game, um, Newcastle is a, a football stronghold. It's a, it's a powerful uh, part of Australia that has a deep, entrenched history in the game. And Newcastle, we need them firing. When Laurie McKinnon was CEO and he had them up and going and they made that grand final, we saw the power of the club. Um, I just think that community in Newcastle is just looking for an excuse to support the club in big numbers again. They've been shitty that they've been dealt some pretty bad hands with some very average owners over the journey. So if they can get a solid one, especially if someone's got a connection to the community, I mean, so their owners of, you know, from um, the Chinese bloke, Martin King, to the, the Nathan Tinkler, to Constantine. I mean, they've had, they've had all sorts of uh, uh, colourful racing identities, as we might say, as an Australian colloquialism, Rob. Um, if they get a decent owner, that... That club is one that can be a powerhouse in this competition. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, they it, just regardless need a good of what owner, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Hot topic from you, Edge. My hot topic is the European Women's Champions League. A little bit of scuttlebutt uh, in the English media, which is, I think, is a little bit mysterious and probably mischievous as well. Is they're saying that um, obviously when you think about European Women's Champions League, you know, some of the big clubs like Arsenal, Wolfsburg, Juventus, Manchester United, they come to mind, but they're all missed out on qualifications. So um, there is a bit of scuttlebutt in the English press saying that uh, the Women's Champions League, Champions League format needs to be rejigged. It needs to be uh, tinkered with to ensure that some of these big clubs get to play because, you know, they're saying that some of the clubs out of the continent, in particular some of the lesser known, uh, you know, um, geographic regions of Europe that are throwing up clubs like Prague, for example, Paris FC, for example, they're saying that they're not worthy of uh, the European Women's Champion League. So as little old uh, Edge, Mike Edgeley from uh, Australia dibs into this issue, uh, the English journalists need to put the handbrake on. This is a geographical regional competition. Then you've got to win your way into the tournament, Rob. And if you lose in the in the qualifying stages, like Wolfsburg, Manchester United, Arsenal, and Juventus did, you don't make the tournament, Rob. Yeah, fair point. Um, not exactly something that um, that world football um, power brokers um, tend to agree with. Um, just think Super League uh, over the last couple of years, but um, it's um, it's uh, uh, fascinating to to watch this all play out uh, in the in the geopolitics of, of global football. Um, so, look, I'm going to end my hot topic of the week with the departure of Danny Townsend. Um, he's he's fallen on his sword and uh, and he's um, he's secured a leading role with the Saudi Arabia based sports investment 
company uh, um, after uh, uh, being the face uh, behind the the ultimately ill-fated and and much hated uh, grand final decision. Um, he uh, uh, he left the country quietly, but um, he is quoted here as he says, "I welcome the opportunity to build on the strong foundations of uh, of SRJ as we pursue exciting avenues to drive fan engagement, encourage greater sports participation, and unlock game changing opportunities in the region." Now, Edge, um, I know you you keep a very open mind um, with regards to, to Middle Eastern sport. Uh, clearly, uh, this is a, is a huge role for Danny Townsend. Um, he you know some might think that he's he's gone out with his tail between on his legs, but uh, uh, others would suggest that he's landed on his feet. Oh, he's definitely landed on his feet. Um, Look, uh, he made a bad decision. and Was it only his decision that uh, the A-League grand final deal got done? Um, I don't think it was. I think think there's a collective ownership to that. Was he left Mm. holding the baby? Probably. Um, Middle Eastern football um, has receiving a influx of funds and popularity. As I've said before on this program, 350 million people in the Middle East. It's a big market. Um, they're an emerging powerhouse of uh, football finance for obvious reasons. You can argue the toss about some of the geopolitical issues that are currently facing the world and their role in it. But at the end of the day, um, the world is the world and uh, it's a region of the world that's uh, flexing its muscles. and. Um, we need to keep an open mind to what all that means. You know, that we've had a World Cup in the region. There's going to be more major um, football events in, in the region and they're going to be big players for a long time through ownership of clubs and, um, you know, and Australia's place in Asia means that we will be, you know, in the coalface um, on the field, uh, playing our, our, you know, looking to beat some of these nations as they emerge as big powerhouse of, of, of football. We... And, you know, there's lots of Australians already working in the Middle East um, in various industries. So why should Australians not work in the football industry in the Middle East, Rob? No, no. Well, I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't. It'd just be interesting to see um, how his um, his career evolves um, with uh, you know the bidding um, pretty much uh, all set for Saudi Arabia to, to win the the World Cup uh, rights in 2034. Joey, uh, uh, he certainly would have learned a lot from uh, from the recent experience of the Women's World Cup in this country. Well, yeah, one would imagine that he's been taking notes on that, and I mean. When you take a job in sport in Saudi Arabia, it comes with certain... I mean, we don't even have to use our words for it. I mean, I remember Mohammed bin Salman um, in an interview with Fox News. I think it was in September or something. He talked about if sports washing is going to increase my... I'm looking at the quote now. If sports washing is going to increase my gross domestic product by 1%, then we'll continue doing that. So Saudi Arabia are going to continue doing this. It's going to be a massive burgeoning industry. And he certainly has landed... Danny Townsend certainly has landed on his feet. One imagines actually he's gone from being um, running one of the smallest leagues in Australia to suddenly one of the top 50 most powerful people in sport um, with the amount of resourcing that he's going to have at his disposal. So... It was something for the league, and I'll just say, like, flat out, Edge, like, it absolutely wasn't just his decision. He was left holding, like, pretty much every single club ran for cover the morning of the announcement when they saw the reaction. They lost control of the messaging when um, Adam Peacock, with a great scoop, broke the story before they were ready to go out with it, and clubs immediately ran for cover and left um, Danny Townsend. That press conference, I think, was at Bankwest or Combat Parramatta, 
that was supposed to be him and every chairman or an executive from every club. And within a few hours, I think victory pulled out uh, in the, a day or two before maybe. And then every other club just went nut, not having this. And he was left there to um, be the pincushion, so to speak, of all the um, anger and that. No, see, he certainly had a role in the decision as well. And he was well remunerated as the chief executive to f- perform that permission, but he certainly wasn't the only one. I think for the league's sake, between this, the grand final deal, it sort of sets the stage now for a bit of healing to take place. Fans can come back on board. Um, certainly, Daddy Townsend accomplished a lot with the A-Leagues, but his tenure will inevitably be um, judged by not only the grand final deal, but also the face role that he was thrust into. Well, we've got his number. So we might have to ping him a WhatsApp message and invite him on the show and see if we can uh, pick his brains on on just what's happening over there, Edge. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to, uh, once he gets his uh, feet under the table, to find out uh, what he's actually doing and and just, you know, insight into that part of the world. Look, you know, mm. I've said before, Rob, I've spent mm. a lot of time working in that part of the world and um, understand just how lots lots of uh, stuff in that part of the world's moving on mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about progressive social issues through to mm-hmm. sport mm-hmm. commerce and etc and you know mm-hmm. it's an interesting place uh, it's not without its uh, challenges mm-hmm. uh, especially no, for traditional western sort of orientated mm-hmm. views of the world but um yeah it's it's, it's fascinating absolutely now before we go um a special shout out to a uh, one of the elder statesmen of football in this country, uh, uh, during the week, uh, uh, as the news of uh, Sir Bobby Charlton's passing broke, um, there were you know lots of little nuggets of stories bobbed up during the week, and there was a caller to uh, to Two GB and Four BC on the weekend with uh, uh, the uh, the Murray Olds Murray Wilton show uh, in the afternoon. A certain uh, gentleman called Horst rang up to uh, to tell the boys that he had played against uh, not only Sir Bobby Charlton but against George Best and Dennis Law and, uh, and a whole bunch range of other luminaries and uh, and as the uh, the boys asked him who he was he he revealed that his name was Horst Schneider who uh, was uh, a, a, a he came from Germany when he was six years old, had a, had a long career in Australian football, played for the Socceroos uh, in 1967 against Scotland. And uh, and he is also a very close friend of our good friend, John Accardo from Hoyt's Food. So John gave me a buzz and, uh, and, and told me. So I, I got the audio from my friends at Nine Radio and uh, I sent it along to Horst. And uh, he, he was very emotional and grateful that, uh, that he'd been remembered as well. So uh, I don't know, there might be... Uh, a little offside at some stage uh, episode where we picked the brains of an elder statesman at some point who played with all these great names because he's a very funny guy. He's still 79 years old and very sprightly. So a big shout out to Horst Edge. Oh, fantastic. What a name in Australian football. And what a name generally. Horst Schneider. Let's get him on, Rob. Uh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. We will do that. Well, Edge, uh, you uh, enjoy the, the day in Thailand. Uh, I can see the sun out your window there, mate, so uh, still a few hours of uh, beautiful summer. Yes. Enjoy Willem's company while you're over there. Yes, I'm taking Willem out for some spicy street food tonight at one of the local yeah. markets. We might go down to Yarrawak, which is uh, Thai for Chinatown. Nice. And what about you, Joe? What do you got this evening, mate, uh, as we wrap up this uh, Stubbage Town podcast? Uh, not a lot, Uh just hanging out at home and getting ready for another week of Matilda's action. A-League men, just do it. Got to prep for that. Football never sleeps. Beauty, mate. Hey, Joey, uh, thanks again for, for coming in off the bench um, for, for these couple of weeks um, as Willem departed and Derek's been away. Uh, uh, mate, it, uh, we, we love having you on as a guest, but, uh, but you know. Even, even better when so. he's riding shotgun with us, Rob. 
Oh yeah, mate, he's uh, fantastic, Joey. Uh, um, a football royalty family in this country, mate, and uh, you are the crown prince of football in this country. Right? God no, don't say no, no, no. Okay, I think it's something more suitable. <laughs> See you, mate. Till next time, Joey. And Adam Maloney, uh, who has uh, just done always a, a wonderful job uh, in uh, producing our show. Thank you, Adam, for your, all your great work. And to our listeners out there, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Again, please subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time Offside wherever you get your podcast. Twitter. On box to box NTS and follow us on X, uh, like us on Facebook, and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.